psychologically the key indicators of going through a cancer experience or any diagnosis of life-threatening illness. A, there's the mortality threat. So you recognize that this has the potential to foreshorten your life. The second big piece is control. So we go through our lives with the illusion that we have control over what happens to us. And so they recognize they have less control than they thought. So people need to learn to regulate those emotions or to accept them. So acceptance-based approaches are really the answer. You know, it's as simple as that. No one wants to have cancer, no one wants to feel this way, but you do, that's where you are. And so that's where the kindness comes in, the self-compassion. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with health psychologist and contemplative researcher, Linda Carlson. Linda is professor and chair of psychosocial oncology at the University of Calgary. And she has been an absolute pioneer in bringing mindfulness and contemplative practice into the world of cancer. As we'll hear, she conducted the first ever trials of mindfulness for cancer patients over 20 years ago, and she's been studying it in various ways ever since. In our conversation, we talk about the impressive results she's seen from this intervention, which is now called mindfulness-based cancer recovery, on things like stress and anxiety, quality of life, immune function, cortisol, telomeres, and more. We get into all of this in the show, and we also talk about some of the more subtle, maybe deeper aspects of the cancer experience, like acceptance in the face of suffering, reevaluating your identity, touching into boundlessness, living well versus living long, and a lot more. And in addition to her significant research and clinical work, Linda has also been instrumental in integrating mindfulness into cancer treatment systemically at an international level. And she's also been a key player in forming the new Academic Society for Contemplative Research. Cancer is an experience that touches so many of us, either personally or through loved ones, and it's full of challenges. Linda's work offers a path for living well, both with cancer and beyond it. As I think will become clear, Linda is a force, and I so appreciate all the effort and heart that she puts into her work to improve the lives of so many. There's lots of resources in the show notes, both about her research and also about the mindfulness program that she's developed for cancer patients and their support network. That's now available online and through an app. So please check that out and maybe share this episode with people you know who might benefit. Okay, I'm really happy to share with you today, Linda Carlson. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Linda Carlson to the show today. Thanks for being here, Linda. I'm really excited about it. I always love to start with a little background information about the guests and kind of understanding how you got where you are. So could you share a little bit of your path into psychology and also meditation and how those things came together? Sure, sure. I mean, the question is, how far back should I go on that? But <laughs> However you want. Well, you know, um, I grew up in Calgary in Canada, so I'm, I'm a Canadian and have spent my whole career here. And I guess in undergrad, I was drawn to psychology. So ended up doing, you know, a, a major in psychology generally and realized that, you know, I wanted to go into clinical at some point. And the other passion I had at that time was just to get out of Dodge. I wanted to travel. I was really excited about seeing the world, learning about new cultures, that kind of thing. And so after I finished undergrad, um, I took a year off and I traveled around, you know, the typical backpacking around Europe sort of thing. 
Um, and as I was doing that, you know, I had lots of experiences that were kind of, I guess, mind expanding, you know, meeting people from different cultures and different traditions. And I worked in Israel for a few months, you know, on a, on a farm. And I started reading um, more spiritual Buddhist type things. And I remember one of the first books I read was the Tibetan book of living and dying. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was popular at the time. So this is, we're going back like 30 years, a little bit more actually. Um, and so that was just the book I picked up and I started reading it and was quite fascinated. And before I had left on my year of traveling, I had applied to a number of grad schools and clinical, but really didn't know where I was going with it. Like I was really at that point, you know, you look back and it's like, oh, it looks so planned out. The person sort of knew what they wanted to do. But I, uh, you know, had an interest in forensic psychology and social psychology. Health psychology really was not even on my radar. But I ended up choosing uh, McGill University not because of the professor or the program, but because I wanted to live in Montreal. That would be fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was the most interesting place that I could think of living in Canada. So after my year of travel, um, I landed in Montreal, and this was 1992, to start a clinical psychology PhD. And they're very small classes, and there was, I think, eight people in my class. And it just so happened, and this is so serendipitous, that one of my classmates was a fellow called Neil, older than the rest of us. We were early 20s. I don't know. He probably was only in his early 30s, but he seemed very old to me and had just come from seven years in Thailand huh. studying as a Thai forest monk with Ajahn Chah in that lineage in Vipassana and, and was ordained, shaved head, the robes, the whole thing. For some reason, he had decided to come back to civilization and get a PhD in clinical psychology at McGill. So there he was, right? Um, and I had a burgeoning interest in meditation. And he said, well, I'm happy to teach you. And so we started a, a weekly sangha, really, throughout grad school. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And so also um, in that cohort, well, not in my class, but a few years ahead, was Kirk Brown. Oh, wow. I don't know if you know Kirk. Yeah. Uh, so Kirk and I uh, sat with Neil. There was a number of other students as well. And so we just started sitting in the Vipassana tradition every week while I was in grad school for six years I was there. And at the same time, I started a yoga practice. So it was a Hatha yoga practice, just came upon a teacher who was amazing and very contemplative and was doing that personally. And Kirk was a bit you know, more immersed in this world than I was. And he uh, knew John Kabat-Zinn or knew of him. And I invited him to Montreal, to McGill in 1995. So I started grad school in 1992. We were sitting, uh, Kirk invited John to come up. He gave a talk. I like to say it was the first time I ate a raisin mindfully. Right. And I became familiar with MBSR then through that encounter with John. Now my PhD was in um, mind-body, not medicine, I suppose, but mind-body research. I was looking at the effects of hormones on memory in uh, pre-, pre and post-menopausal women and Alzheimer's disease patients is what I ended up doing. So a psychoneuroimmunology framework. Mm-hmm. And so I was learning a lot about mind-body connection biologically that way. Um, and at the same time, you know, deepening my personal practice with mindfulness, with meditation, learning about MBSR. And then at the end of my PhD, you do a year-long internship. And I decided to come back to Calgary and ended up in a rotation at the cancer center. And it was just one of, you know, I also did forensics. I did inpatient psychiatry, but I ended up at the cancer center two days a week. And that's where I met Michael Specka who has been kind of my partner in crime all these years. He's a psychologist who worked more clinically than research with uh, people who have cancer. And he was also um, a meditation practitioner and a yogi and actually had his first degree in dance. Oh, wow. Dance and movement therapy. And so him and there was a couple of other people who were into yoga who also worked at the cancer center. And so I arrived for a year as an internship student 
And they said, we're thinking about starting a, a meditation group and a yoga group for the patients, right? They said, you know, we all do these practices. We think they're really beneficial. Why aren't we offering it to our patients? And I said, well, you know, there's this thing called MBSR, right? There's this guy called John Kabat-Zinn. This was 1998, 1997, actually, when I started there. So it was all very new. And I said, we should take what he's doing and see if we can adapt it for the people we work with. And they said, great idea. And so we created this program. It was kind of a mishmash, really. And we just called it Mindfulness for Cancer or something like that. Um, and that's when we did our first very small clinical trial. It was a waitlist controlled trial. We took anybody who would sign up. So there was 89 patients. They could be on, off treatment, any type of cancer, any stage of disease. Um, it was a waitlist RCT. So it was a pretty strong design. Um, and so I kind of ran that study. Um, I finished my internship year and I applied for a postdoctoral fellowship and I got funding to do the research in mindfulness for people with cancer. And so with that first clinical trial, we saw really, really amazing results. The effect sizes were huge. We were looking at stress and mood disturbance, anxiety, depression, you know, confusion, uh, fatigue, those kind of, we use the, the profile of mood states, which has these six subscales and then a symptoms of stress inventory with like eight subscales looking at physical manifestations of stress, habitual behaviors, muscle tension, all this stuff. Huge effects. Really very impressive, right? And I went, wow, I think we're on to something here. Yeah. So it turned out to be the first paper um, ever of a mindfulness-based intervention for people with cancer. Mm -hmm. And so Michael and I went down and we did some training with John and Saki, you know, when they did those Omega Institutes and whatnot. There wasn't a formal training institute the way there is now for teaching MBSR. So we did what we could in terms of training in the MBSR model. And then we really just launched our program as a clinical service. And because we're in a you know, public health system, we were able to get it just part of the usual offerings through our psychosocial resources program. So it's been offered clinically for patients since 1998 without stop. And um, Michael and I have been two of the instructors and we've trained other people through the years, but he's retired now and I'm still doing it. Wow. Yeah. What an amazing trajectory. I love that. It, I mean, started even in grad school, you were at this great confluence of interests where you landed. Yeah, you know, and it's always been my belief that you just maintain openness to things, right? You kind of put it out there like, this is what I'm hoping will come my way. You know, I've always thought, oh, I'd like to study X. I'll just keep my feelers out and somebody will come along, a student or a colleague who's like, oh, I have the means or the expertise. Let's do it. Right. And so off we go. Um, and so that's kind of how my whole career has, you know, progressed, at least in this area. Fantastic. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit, you, you've, as you said, you've been studying this for over 20 years, so you've had a lot of trials um, and found pretty incredible results. And I know one of the primary outcomes that you often look at is stress and symptoms of stress in, in cancer patients. And so can you talk a little bit about what you understand now about the mechanisms of how these practices can help reduce stress for cancer patients, chronic illness, and, you know, ostensibly anybody? Sure. And I think to understand that, you need to take a step back and put yourself in the shoes of someone going through that experience. Yeah. And so what we know psychologically, the kind of key indicators of going through a cancer experience or any diagnosis of life-threatening illness, A, there's the mortality threat, like the existential issues. You recognize that, you know, this may not kill you now, but it has the potential to foreshorten your life, right? So that makes people look more closely at all those existential issues, meaning and purpose in life, what will it mean for my family, for my relationships, uh, looking back if they've lived the life they wanted, are there regrets? You know, so the whole existential piece is front and center. So that's 
one big piece. The second big piece is, is control, mm. right? So we go through our lives with the illusion that we have control over what happens to us. I mean, it's illusory, but most people aren't uh, challenged until something like that happens. And so then the people realize they really don't have as much control over their destiny, as it were, as they might have thought, right? And that's very uh, threatening. We like to feel like we can control our outcomes and control what happens to us. And so they recognize they have less control than they thought around how their cancer is going to progress, around what the rest of their life is going to look like. And part and parcel with that is uncertainty and lack of predictability and routine, right? Because all of a sudden, the doctors can't tell you cancer is one of those illnesses where there's probabilities, but there's no certainties. They don't know what kind of treatment they might have. They don't know how they might respond. They don't know if it might come back or when or how. And so living with uncertainty, again, and controllability makes people very uncomfortable. And so those are the psychological features. And so then there's also the whole physical manifestations of stress that we're well aware of in the world of health psychology and psychoneuroimmunology. And so, you know, your HPA axis, your fight or flight response gets activated. You've got things like uh, increased heart rate, blood pressure, cortisol levels. And we now understand that it's not just our, our nervous system, it's our immune system, it's our endocrine systems, it's our gut axis too. They're all intertwined. You can never separate those things, you know, and to simplify it, I often say every state of mind has a state of body, right? We don't have a single thought that doesn't manifest itself physiologically in some way or another. Um, some people find that terrifying. And there's a whole, gosh, a whole mythology. There's a whole school of thought that, oh, stress caused my cancer, mm, mm. right? Um, and so I'm separating that from lifestyle because we know that lifestyle factors like exercise, nutrition, uh, sleep, smoking, those are directly causally related to cancer. But then there's this whole idea that, oh, the way that I think is affecting my physiology, which is making me get cancer. You know, and that's too simplistic in my view. I mean, even the cancer biologists don't understand what causes cancer, you know, and how all these factors come together. And so the way I like to think about it is it could be a risk factor. In the mindfulness-based stress reduction paradigm, we talk about this model of stress reacting versus responding, you know, in the downward spiral, where if we don't handle these repeated threats physiologically, right, where we we mount a fight or flight response, but we aren't able to deactivate it. And so one builds on the next, on the next, that's where you get your chronic high blood pressure, your arrhythmias, your susceptibility to, I mean, often coping that happens is maladaptive, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, right? Or we try and suppress emotions, but we have this chronically hyper aroused nervous system. So that does cause physiological wear and tear, and it might increase susceptibilities where people are vulnerable. And the vulnerabilities can be environmental, biological, you know, hereditary, right? So I think it's one piece in the puzzle that may increase risk, but the research on stress and risk for cancer is unclear. Mm -hmm. Some studies show it does increase risk and others not, but it's so complex. One thing we do understand, though, is that untreated depression, for example, the strongest results are with depression. If it remains untreated after a diagnosis, it does worsen outcome. Mm. In cancer, cancer outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's linked to higher mortality. So people who have untreated depression over a long period of time have a higher risk of mortality once diagnosed with cancer. Okay. Yeah, so it is important to treat these things, but it's, it's complex. And so the way I like to present it to people with cancer is that we don't know why you got cancer. We'll never potentially know why, but we know where we are now. And so coming to that place of acceptance and then looking, what can I do 
What do I have control over? Where are areas that I can change my life moving forward, not only to improve maybe my outcomes and my survival, but to improve my quality of life? You know, many people with cancer say it's much more important to me that I live well than I live long. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So in dealing with um, all of that uncertainty and, as you said, all the existential stress, how have you seen that mindfulness or how do you conceptualize mindfulness as being able to help people come to terms with those situations? Sure. I mean, there's a few ways, right? So an umbrella way, I think of it as a form of coping. So when we think about coping, we often think of problem-focused coping versus emotion-focused coping, right? And many people are very adept at problem-focused coping. You know, that's solving the problem, getting the information, making the decisions, carrying out the behavior. But emotion-focused coping is a little bit more amorphous. It's a little more difficult because you've got all these emotions swirling around. There's nothing you can do to solve the problem. You're living with cancer. There's going to be this uncertainty. So people need to learn to regulate those emotions or to accept them really is the way that you regulate them. So we talk about emotion regulation strategies. So this is one factor that's been tested as a mediator between mindfulness-based interventions and improvements in symptomatology is emotion regulation. The other one we often look at is experiential avoidance. So people use strategies like rumination or worry to try and manage emotions or regulate emotions, which is counterproductive. And sometimes they also use avoidance. All of this being unconscious, right? These mechanisms usually. Yeah. I mean, often, like, that's how we're socialized. We learn, actually, to spend a lot of our mental energy uh, in the past ruminating, you know, why me? If only this, if only that. You have regrets. You get depressed. Or worrying about the future, which is a big problem for many people with cancer, because what if it comes back and constantly being hypervigilant and monitoring for symptoms? So acceptance-based approaches are really the answer. You know, it's as simple as that. Mm right? No one wants to have cancer. No one wants to feel this way, but you do. That's where you are, right? And so acceptance, and that's where the kindness comes in, the self-compassion, right? Is yes, I'm suffering and that's okay. Yeah. So I know you've, as your career has progressed, you've measured so many different kinds of outcomes, you know, starting with the psychological, moving into quality of life and spiritual and then biological markers and all of these together. Um, So I had meant to ask you this question. I think I'm going to reframe it now. I had wanted to ask if you think that the action of mindfulness on stress is kind of the primary action. But now that I'm thinking about it, they're all sides of the same coin in a way, you know. Yeah, yeah. they really are. You know, and I didn't really talk too much about the cognitive piece, but I would say our intervention really is more like MBCT, like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy than classic MBSR, because we do spend a bit of time also looking at the stories we tell and the interpretations and the thoughts. Um, The mindfulness take on CBT is not these thoughts are wrong, they need to be changed. It's more like, how am I interpreting the world? What story am I telling myself? And what's the consequence of that? And then are there other ways to look at it? Can I take a step back and look at things differently? Right. So the usual things like um, jumping to conclusions, magnification, catastrophizing, uh, taking things personally, you know, we go through all that because it comes up in so many circumstances directly related to cancer, but also more more broadly for people. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about is the way that, you know, in the common discourse, we always hear about fighting cancer and cancer is conceptualized as the enemy. Right. Yeah. And, And then thinking about you know, mind-body interactions and, and connections and how, you know, the cancer is a part of your body. So how do you frame it in, in this program in terms of relating to the cancer? 
Yeah, I mean, I personally very much dislike battle metaphors. And so people are different in how um, they like to think about working with their illness, right? So I just take their lead. Uh, many people in our program also don't like the battle metaphors. Some people use that terminology. I don't find it helpful at all. And a lot of people find it offensive, right? They lost their battle with cancers if they didn't try hard enough. Mm. You know, so I we definitely use more, um, it's a cancer journey, you know, working with, uh, healing the body. We talk a lot about healing rather than curing. Um, and, you know, one can be healed if you're not, even if you're not cured. And so if your cancer progresses, it's not a failure. Right. You know, like you didn't try hard enough or something. I find that very offensive, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. That's helpful. I appreciate those alternative frames. You know, death is not a failure. We all die. We all die. It's like Western society thinks that, you know, getting sick and dying is some kind of horrible failure. It's like there's only one way in and only one way out. It's just a matter of how you're going to die, right? And can you die in a way that's peaceful and accepting, you know, and compassionate? You were talking about the stories that we tell and how that's such a major part of from the cognitive side of how we how we deal with these things and stresses. And I'm thinking about self. And of course, you know, in Buddhist theory, self is such a, a central construct and kind of moving towards seeing that more as a construction and, and less in a reified way. And then I, I'm thinking with chronic illness and cancer, like mm -hmm. it must have such an impact on one's identity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how does that play into um, the way you work with these patients? Yeah, I mean, it's a good opportunity. It's a funny for me to phrase it that way, but cancer is a good opportunity to work with these things because people are much more, well, they're suffering. And so they are open to things they may not have been in the past. You know, I, I like to give the example of the, the rancher from Southern Alberta with his cowboy hat, you know, tough, strong, silent type, but he gets prostate cancer and is facing end of life or is really unhappy and, you know, maybe is more open to these things. So I do find the people dealing with this serious illness are very open to looking at different approaches, you know, many of them would have said, oh, that's all new age bullshit, excuse my language, you know, until this happened and nothing else is helping them. So they might show up and be skeptical, which we love. I mean, I'm more than happy to have skeptics show up. And just as the Buddha would say, it's like, don't believe me, you know, try it for yourself. Yeah. Right. This is first person experience. Um, and so many of them are questioning their identity and they're taking this as a pause because many of them are also off work if they were already working, you know, if they were currently working or not retired or anything like that. They're taking a certain amount of time off for treatment. So it's a really good opportunity for them to take a step back and reconsider everything about their lives and um, themselves and, you know, what's meaningful, what brings purpose, who are they really, you know, if their hair falls out. Is that part of their identity? If they're not working their job, you know, was that part of their identity? Like what's left, mm. right? And that can be very, very powerful just to have people, you know, we really, as we get further through the program, at the beginning, it's more concentrative practice, awareness of breath, body scanning, um, just trying to train the attentional capacity to be in the moment. But then we really do focus more on open awareness, bare awareness practices, uh, compassion practices, 
I really like um, Sky Like Mind is one of my favorite practices that connecting with the universal, you know, the boundless. Mm. Can you describe that a little bit for the audience? Oh, yeah, sure. So I like to use metaphors a lot when we're teaching. And so if you use one like the clouds, so you you might be sitting there um, hovering on breath awareness, but have this metaphor, this image of the thoughts are like clouds, you know, and some days it's dark and stormy and that's all you can see is the dark clouds. And other days they may be light and fluffy and, you know, they're drifting across the sky and there's a glimpse, a glimpse beyond the clouds of what's always there. And that's the blue sky, the endless, boundless, never ending, you know, interconnectedness. That's the true nature. So the clouds are all these ideas around identity and you know, who am I and worries and all those kind of thoughts we have that make us feel oppressed, you know, it's pushing down on you. But beyond that, it's boundless, right? You can expand endlessly. There's more space in the blue sky, you know, that sky-like mind, and that's always there. Sometimes we can't see it, we can't feel it, but understanding that that is always a possibility. So people get glimpses of the sky, of the boundlessness, of that spaciousness. And so they can remind themselves in times where they feel oppressed by the clouds and the thunderstorms that this is not going to last. There's another way of being. I've felt it. I've touched it. I know it's there. And then we also connect that with the sort of interconnectedness that everybody's in that same space. That same sky-like mind is universal. Mm. And I imagine that's such a sense of more of security and comfort, right? To tap into that interconnection. And it's also that sense of um, everything's fine, calm, and peace. And they say, I had a glimpse of that feeling of peace and calmness. And I don't have it all the time, but I know it's possible now. Mm. You know, and some people will say after our retreat day, I have never felt that peaceful before, like ever in my life. I love that you're bringing in this, you know, it's more towards the non-dual traditions, I guess, as part of how that would be described in, in the Buddhist realm. I don't hear that often emphasized, I think, in a standardized program as much. So I think that's wonderful, it's particularly for these participants and what they're dealing with. Yeah. And, you know, we have a curriculum and we've written a book, um, but I've never written a manual for this program because, and when we teach it, so I have a training, an online training program now too for facilitators for MBCR. But, you know, what I say to people is that you really have to take the lead of the participants, right? So I'm not going to say, oh, session two, you have to talk about pain, right? It's like, no, you talk about pain when they talk about pain, you know, and so you talk about non-dual awareness when they're starting to get a feeling of it. And so it's really the skill of being a facilitator is is hearing what people are coming with and taking those opportunities. There's certain places I want to go. Like, yeah, I want to talk about pain, right? I want to talk about sleep. I want to talk about, you know, open awareness, but I'm going to do it when they're receptive to it. And that's, I'm sure, so much of your training too in clinical psychology, right? Like that sounds like a therapy setting too, how you're engaging. Yeah, it certainly helps when facilitators are also therapists. Yeah. I'm imagining that some listeners might be curious about whether or not these kinds of interventions actually affect disease outcomes um, and mortality or the way the cancer progresses. Have you looked at that at all? You know, I've avoided going there, um, partly because it's just super complex and super expensive to do that research well. Um, And very few people, I think, would want to fund it. But And more theoretically is that I just don't think it's that important. Mm. You know, and I said earlier, people want to live well. They want to have a good quality of life for whatever time they have. You know, and I think, yes, maybe there's a potential that these kind of interventions might help people live a little bit longer and 
it would depend on the type of cancer they have and how advanced it is when it's first discovered, how aggressive. There's so many other factors. But really, I want to help them live better. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to talk about one line of research that you've done, which is into telomere length. So this is in the biological realm. And um, you published a study that was groundbreaking, which actually used a really strong active control group. And maybe we can go down a little bit of a tangent just to help uh, listeners understand about study design and things. But yeah, so you had a social support group as a as a control group to the the mindfulness group. So first, I'd love to unpack that a little bit just so listeners have a context. Sure. So maybe you could talk about some of the challenges with um, studying these kinds of complex interventions and why you need really particular control groups. Yeah, I mean, I actually love study design. It's one of my other passions, actually, (laughs) is research design. Um, And so in the area of mindfulness-based interventions, the design that's most commonly used is if it's an RCT, a randomized controlled trial, is a control group that's either waitlist or usual care, meaning that, you know, half the participants are randomized to get the mindfulness-based intervention, the other half just do nothing. Um, It's not a strong design. We know that almost anything is better than nothing. Right. Right. Send them to the spa for a day, they'll be happier. You know, I'm being facetious, but we already know, like there's been so many studies done in that design. When I see another one, I just kind of roll my eyes. So really where we need to go is what's known as comparative effectiveness, which is the type of study I do. I'm also interested in real world pragmatic research. And so in the real world, people are going to choose something that they want to do that they think will help them, right? So in the mindset study that you're describing um, where we we did telomere length as one of the outcomes, we randomly assigned people, it was breast cancer survivors in this case, to either the MBCR, so that's our mindfulness-based cancer recovery. Um, Another active intervention is called supportive expressive therapy. It's also empirically supported as being beneficial for women with breast cancer. And there was a third condition that was our our real control. But again, I don't like giving people nothing. So we gave them a one-day stress management seminar. It was based on Mike Antoni's work, actually, with cognitive behavioral stress management. So they got that. And then the people who had just the one-day stress management seminar, after the other interventions were done, so three months later, they were then randomized into either MBCR or supportive expressive therapy. So everybody got one of the active interventions eventually. We followed them up for a whole year. So we took uh, saliva samples, blood samples, and did a lot of the biomarker analyses as well. And so cortisol, you know, stress hormone um, has been studied quite a bit. And um, we look at the profile of release over the course of a day. We know that certain profiles are healthier in terms of a, a range of different outcomes, including survival in some studies. And so we did see a shift in the cortisol profiles to healthier, steeper slopes with lower uh, bedtime cortisol, which is actually the sort of key marker that's important. We also looked at some cytokines. So these are immune cells associated with inflammation. Um, I saw some changes there. And then what you're bringing up that was novel in this study that people really hadn't done before, especially in mindfulness, was telomere length. So that's the caps at the ends of the chromosomes within the DMA. It's associated with cell aging. And so quite a number of observational studies had shown that shorter telomere length was associated with higher risk for various forms of cancer and also shorter survival times. And it's also been shown in other diseases, uh, diabetes, heart disease, to be a marker of actual clinical outcomes. And so nobody had really looked at whether or not telomere length could change in such a short period of time because it was just over three months. Mm -hmm. But I worked with Alyssa Apple as an advisor on this, who's an expert, of course, in that area. And she said, well, it's possible. And I talked to our telomere biologist here at University of Calgary. She said, it's possible. And so we, we did that study. And what we found, so we ended up comparing the supportive expressive and the mindfulness women before and after 
Um, but there was no differences between the two active interventions. Right. And so we lumped them together and compared them to the women in the control, which was just the one day stress management seminar. And that's where we saw the changes. So the women in the interventions, their telomere length didn't change pre to post over three months, but the women in the control group, they got shorter. I see. Ostensibly due to stress or aging, just aging? or Just yeah. maybe natural aging, mm -hmm. right? So um, telomeres do shorten naturally with each successive cell division, and they tend to get shorter with age, and they tend to be shorter in people with uh, different chronic illnesses. So they continued to shorten in the women in the control condition, but they stayed stable in the women who did the interventions. Now, we don't know, you know, if that is something that would have persisted long term because we didn't have that data in the follow-up. We don't know if it means anything clinically because we didn't follow them up with the clinical outcomes. It's interesting, you know, and as you said, the media loved it. There was all kinds of crazy headlines, uh, you know, and I find it fascinating, but it's not surprising to me at all. And not even as important as the self-reported psychosocial stuff in my mind. Right. So, yeah, I, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about the media coverage around that, because I think there's some interesting places to go there. And then also, like you said, you know, it's not perhaps the most important outcome, or it's not surprising. What I thought was wonderful about that study was your use of the supportive expressive group therapy as a as a comparative group there, because the fact that, you know, there were no differences between that group and the mindfulness, I think at the time in the literature, people were just starting to use these kind of more active control groups and comparing it to other potentially effective strategies. Now, I'm going to interject, though, because there were differences on the psychological outcomes. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, the mindfulness group was superior, actually, on all the psych outcomes. But on all the biomarker outcomes, the two groups were similar. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, and as you say, the media only covered the telomere stuff, which is part of what I want to chat with you about. So at least in terms of the biological markers, that would suggest that these two interventions are you know, equivocal, pretty much the same in terms of how they're affecting these markers. And at the time, I remember thinking like, oh, this is a really important, not dismantling trial, because that wasn't really the, the design of it, but it speaks to the role of the social support that exists within the mindfulness-based intervention. Is that one of the ways that you interpreted that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting thing was, so we added in outcome measures of social support specifically because what I was trying to do actually was precision psychosocial oncology to come up with interventions. We also looked at moderators or predictors of who would do better in which intervention. Because the idea was, oh, maybe we could see that people with certain personality characteristics or certain baseline levels of symptomatology would be better off in mindfulness or support groups. Um, none of that panned out, actually. And what happened even with the outcomes we thought would respond more to the social support group, like measures of social support, were better in the mindfulness group. It was crazy. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, you were saying that, you know, you weren't surprised, you know, at the the efficacy that you saw in that study. But of course, the media was all about this. And it was a huge media frenzy around these findings. And it was all about the cellular, you know, the biological, the telomeres. Oh, yeah. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, um, how that coverage went, like how accurate it was, were there problems with it? And then did that impact you know, that research trajectory or just kind of what impacts that had in terms of the media and your work and people's perceptions? Well, you know, I mean, there would be a press release that ran out. Some people would just copy the press release, but they would make up the headlines. 
you know, that were always a bit crazy. Like, so a lot of the headlines only focused on meditation. They never mentioned support groups. Exactly. Right. You know, mindfulness changes your DNA. There was one, it said mind control. Yeah. Mind control changes your, you know, I was like, we're not doing mind control here. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so some of the headlines were, you know, overblown, exaggerated, and um, maybe do an interview with media outlets, and they just pick and choose. Yeah. Right. And many of them don't let you proofread it. Some of them do, the better ones, you know, let you fix kind of any errors, but they just pick and choose what, you know, sensational kind of headlines they want. I wouldn't say it impacted my research at all in any way. I do just find it fascinating. You know, we, we see the same thing even still, but certainly in the earlier days of the mindfulness research field, this obsession with any brain results, right? And how... Well, because then it's real, right? Exactly. Quote, unquote, real. Yeah, that's where I wanted to go is like, what's your perception of why that is so fascinating? And well, it's cool, right? I mean, it's really cool to demonstrate the mind-body connection, um, but it's not more real. I mean, A, there's as much error in that measurement as there is in psychosocial measurement, right? So, you know, people think because there's a number, you know, on a page for telomere length or cytokine expression or whatever it is that all of a sudden it's more real. I mean, there's error in those measures too, but I think more substantively, like what's more important to you, something you can't even feel and might not affect your health in any way or how, how you actually do feel, yeah. right? And people are saying, you know, I feel better. I can do this. I can do that, right? I can go on with my life. I can cope. I can go back to work. I can sleep at night. I mean, what's more real than that? Yeah. Totally agree. So you wanted to say something about your current work. Yeah, it's called the MATCH study. So another thing we found out in Mindset, so we we looked at, as I said, all these moderators that might predict differential outcome in two groups, you know, see if we could predict who'd do better. And we also looked at preference because this was a randomized trial. And people didn't have choice. They knew what the interventions were, but we told them which one they got. And what we saw was that only about 30% of the people got the intervention they originally were hoping to get because we asked them that before they were randomized. And then when we compared people who got their preferred intervention to their non-preferred, no matter what it was, so some people preferred the support group, some people wanted mindfulness, some people actually wanted the one-day stress management seminar. If they got what they wanted, they improved more on a couple of the outcomes, like quality of life, hmm. no matter what it was. Um, so we saw that preference had an effect, whereas other characteristics didn't. And so that got me thinking, you know, RCTs, yeah, they're the gold standard. They're the only way to determine causality and improve your, you know, internal validity. But they're not very real world. I mean, the randomization is not. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like who in the real world says, you know, tell me what to do. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't really work that way. So the next trial we did is called the MATCH study. And we picked the superior intervention, which was the mindfulness, because it did a lot better than the supportive expressive group therapy on most of the outcomes. And we compared it to a Tai Chi Chi Gong group, which was also, you know, evidence building around its efficacy. And I wanted to establish a group like that um, at our center. Mm -hmm. And so we incorporated preference into the design so that people, when they signed up, and it was for all kinds of cancer survivors post-treatment, they had to still have some level of distress. And we asked them, would you like to do a mindfulness group or a Tai Chi group? And if they said one or the other, then they got it. Or are you willing to let us, you know, choose one for you? And so some people said, yeah, that's fine. And so then they were randomized. So we have now both Tai Chi and mindfulness chosen as preference and both Tai Chi and mindfulness randomized. So we've got those four groups. And then within each of those groups, we also randomize them to do it immediately or to be a wait list. Oh, wow. For three months. That's a complex design. It's a very complex design. There's like eight groups. And we added in more biomarkers. So we did the ones we'd done before, the cortisol, salivary cortisol, 
We did um, inflammatory cytokines. We're do we haven't done the telomere length yet, but we're going to do it. And we did gene expression with Steve Cole down at UCLA. So this is the latest thing, right? Is uh, do mind-body interventions actually change the way your genes are expressing proteins and all this kind of thing related to all your bodily functions? So we added that in and we added in also some physical markers that were more likely to be associated with Tai Chi, like a grip strength and speed walk and, you know, those kind of physical things. And we also did psychophysiology stuff too. So we looked at heart rate and blood pressure and these kind of things. Um, and so we enrolled over 600 people. Wow. Like huge trial um, for this area because the mindset was like around 250 or something. So 600 people, Calgary and Toronto, cancer survivors, they did either the Tai Chi intervention for 12 weeks or the mindfulness intervention for nine weeks. We did all these measures pre and post, uh, you know, COVID hit just as we were mm. wrapping things up. Um, oh, boy. Well, we were almost done. Um, so none of it's been published yet, but we're just starting to look at um, the outcomes. And so a sneak peek is that I got the data back on the gene expression and Steve Cole said, this is the cleanest, clearest result I've seen on decreasing genes associated with inflammation in both interventions. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So it hasn't, I haven't written it up. This is the first mention of it. You know, it's preliminary analyses. We need to look at some more stuff, but um, it's definitely, especially for the mindfulness group, we're seeing clear, significant downregulation in inflammatory gene wow. expression. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that because another thing that I wanted to ask you about, I know you've done some inflammatory markers in, in some of your other studies, but I know you also did a study on um, irritable bowel syndrome and IBS, Oh yeah, which is a very highly inflammatory condition. So can you share a little bit about that? And then, yeah, I just love this um, links with inflammation. Yeah. Well, so we didn't do any biomarkers in that study. It was just uh, symptoms, but it was a lot of the studies, we look at more of the psychological stuff, the anxiety and the depression and stress. Here, we actually looked at symptoms of IBS specifically, um, you know, so constipation, diarrhea, gas, bloating, all that. Those symptoms improved um, a lot in the intervention group. And those are directly related to inflammation, right, in the, in the gut. Yeah, so we didn't look at any of those biomarkers, but um, yeah, people improved a lot in terms of their symptomatology in that study too. Mm. I love this kind of convergence. Um, and I feel like in a lot of fields are really starting to look more and more at inflammation underlying so many chronic problems that we have. So. Yeah, you know, and another thing we're doing this as a bit of an aside is um, looking at microbiome stuff as well. Mm, I was going to ask. Yeah, so we haven't done it in the context of mindfulness, although that's a study on deck is just looking at changes in microbiota composition in the gut pre-post mindfulness. But we have done some observational stuff on cancer survivors showing, you know, there's less diversity in the microbiome composition in cancer survivors, and they have a lot of GI symptoms and psychosocial symptoms. So we're bringing in the psychosocial symptoms to what's happening in the gut as well. So we're just about to start a probiotics trial um, for cancer survivors with GI symptoms. Well, I know another direction that you've been going recently is developing online platforms for these kind of interventions and app-based platforms. So do you want to share some about that and maybe some of the pros and cons compared to in-person? Sure. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that's always been important to us is reaching a lot of people who have cancer, as many as we can, with these kinds of interventions. And we know there's limitations to in-person programs, you know, uh, not just their availability, uh, because you need trained facilitators, but also the capacity of people going through cancer treatment to just take the time, the energy, you know, the expense of coming to an in-person program. Um, so back in 2015, actually, we partnered with a company called eMindful and created an online version. Um, and so we wrote that up and um, handed it over to them and they've been offering it mostly through like employee assistance plans and that kind of thing as an online modality. And we're trying to evaluate it. This study has been a bit stalled, but we've been using that program for people during chemotherapy because most of the research in people with cancer and mindfulness-based interventions is post-treatment. But a lot of the symptoms we're treating, like fatigue and uh, anxiety, depression, they develop during chemotherapy, Sure, right? They're chemotherapy-related symptoms and side effects. So the idea with this study is that, okay, we've got the online program now, so it'll be easier for people to do it while they're doing chemo, and maybe this could prevent, diminish, delay the onset of some of these symptoms, right? So catch them before they get really bad. And so what we've been doing is recruiting people just as they're starting chemotherapy and randomly assigning them to do the 12, it's a 12-week sort of shorter session version of MBCR while they're going through chemo or after chemo. So it's kind of the wait list is basically they still get it, but they get it after they finish the chemo. So we've been doing this study for quite a while now. It's been tricky to recruit people because there's a small window of time, you know, between when they know they're doing chemo and when they start it and then COVID happened. Right. Um, but looking at the sort of usual suspects of chemotherapy-related side effects, so our primary outcome is fatigue. We're also looking at cognitive function, um, nausea, vomiting, you know, pain, anxiety, depression. So that study is ongoing with that online platform. And then after that, around 2020, we and again, you know, these things are serendipitous. It's basically approached by people who run these companies. You know, somebody said, "Hey, we have this online thing, or you want to put your thing online?" I said, "Well, if you're going to help us, sure." And so um, there's a mobile app called, it's called AMDTX now, uh, Digital Therapeutics. And so they approached us, they're out of Toronto and said, hey, do you want to put your mindfulness thing in an app? And we said, yeah, actually, we've been thinking about that. Um, and I had a postdoc who really wanted to do that. So we created an app-based version of MBCR and it was really fun. So Michael Speck and I, we went into a professional recording studio and we didn't want it to be just guided meditations because so much of the benefit of the program that we see is not just doing guided meditations. It's that, as John Kabat-Zinn would say, orthogonal shift in consciousness where people really understand, you know, what it is to be mindful and they understand their stress responding. There's the cognitive piece. So we wanted that teaching to be part of the app. And so we went in the studio and we just recreated our dialogue, how we teach these things in classes. And so the developers then took it and turned it all into, you know, app-friendly sound bites, basically. So it's 27 different tracks and a person has to go through it sequentially. It's called the Mindfulness-Based Cancer Survivorship Journey. Mm -hmm. So it's a journey within this AM app. And so people go through it sequentially and they get the teaching, they do a practice, you know, there's um, sort of interspersed as it would be in a class. And so we studied it in a pilot trial a few years back um, with, I don't know, 85 People with cancer went through it. It was a waitlist controlled design. In the end, it, it became more of a user acceptance testing because, you know, people had a hard time getting on it. We had to tweak it a bit. But in the end, the pilot work did show benefit. And our primary outcome there was stress symptoms. And so now we're running a Canada-wide trial. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's called the Seamless Study. And so it's already launched in Calgary, but we're going to be in five sites across Canada. It's through the Canadian Cancer Trials Network um, of clinical trial sites. 
And so we're recruiting 345 people and we're trying to target a diverse group because one of the major limitations of mindfulness research very generally is the, the limited diversity. I, I wrote a commentary once called Wealthy White Western Women. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's who we get. And in psycho-oncology, it's the same thing and they have breast cancer. Um, so we really need to reach out to other demographics, lower SES, people from different racial, ethnic, cultural backgrounds, more men. And so with the seamless study, that's what we've been doing. So we've been recruiting with invitation letters from our cancer registries that target lower SES postal codes. We're oversampling men. You know, we're really trying to get a diverse group into this study. And it's a more of a pragmatic design, very wide, open inclusion criteria. So that's underway. We've recruited, I don't know, 100 or so of the 345. And so they're using the app for four weeks is the design. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that's such an important expansion. I appreciate you naming that, the really narrow participant pools that have been worked with in many, many fields of mindfulness and particularly as you're Absolutely. Saying, yeah. yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, the results generalize from what's been done. Yeah, really well. I have a master's student actually who's specifically looking at the diversity piece. So great. That'd be good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to ask your perspective, kind of stepping back. You've been teaching and researching these interventions for over 20 years. Uh, so you've been in this field really since the beginning. And you've been embedded also in a medical context, which, um, you know, not not many researchers have been um, for that long. So I'm just curious, you know, your title is a professor of psychosocial oncology, which is not, I think, what most people would immediately think of in relation to oncology, right? As we've been saying, it's so usually emphasized on the biological part of cancer. So I'm just curious your perspective on how these practices have been accepted and if it was a difficult sell in the beginning. It sounds like you were placed in a in a context where it was already um, there was interest there, but in the medical world um, more broadly, how have you seen the landscape change maybe over time? Yeah, sure, sure. I was really fortunate, as you said, to be in a in a situation in a environment that was. There was a lot of freedom. Uh, you know, I attribute a lot to our division head. So at our university, there's an academic division of psychosocial oncology, and there's a clinical service of psychosocial resources at the cancer center. But they were the same, one and the same, um, when I started. So Barry Baltz is the name of the fellow who was the head. And he's also one of the leading figures in psychosocial oncology worldwide, mm. you know, has the Order of Canada, was the president of many associations. So he really paved the way and had a lot of influence um, in our setting. And so he thought this was a great line of research. Our cancer center director also actually did yoga. Um, and so there was never any pushback. It was like, this is a great idea, let's do it. And because we're in the Canadian publicly funded system, we have staff who are kind of on the payroll in the department, you know, so it was very easy to train people and assign them to do these evidence-based interventions. You know, and then I guess I'll shift tracks a little bit to talk more broadly around implementation of mindfulness-based interventions in cancer broadly. So that's been a tougher sell over the years, I'd have to say. You know, for some settings, it's been no problem. In fact, in Canada, almost every cancer center has something, hmm. partly based on our, our early work and people using that evidence to, to convince people, but also because of the model in publicly funded healthcare. I think, um, I think providers have more autonomy in terms of the kind of services that they are providing and group-based interventions are, they're less expensive, right? They're more economically, you know, save more money for administrators. So if we can do things in a group-based intervention, then that's all, all great. And they provide social support. Yeah. Right, which is even better, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And so the other work we've been doing, uh, maybe I'll take a step back and talk about the Society for Integrative Oncology. So Hmm. um, this is a professional society, international, 600 or so members. I'm currently the president and I've been um, involved for the last 10 years or so with SIO. And so it's the sort of premier organization for evidence-based integrative therapies. So not just mindfulness-based interventions, but also yoga, acupuncture, you know, a whole range of them, but really focusing on um, trying to integrate evidence-based interventions into oncology care. And so a number of years ago, we started a guidelines project um, and we did it within SIO at first. And we, we published evidence-based guidelines for breast cancer patients back in 2014, I think was the first one. But then we partnered with ASCO. And if you're outside cancer, that might not mean anything to you. But if you're in the cancer world, you will know that ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. I don't know, 60,000 members around the world. It's the largest, and it's oncologists. It's the largest, most influential oncology organization in the world. Okay. And so SIO, you know, we're we compared to that <laughs> um, and focusing on integrative therapies. We partnered with ASCO to produce a series of five guidelines, clinical practice guidelines. And these are important medically for everything, heart disease, diabetes, whatever. A clinical practice guideline is what drives practice and it's what drives reimbursement. And so we were able to last year publish our first joint guideline on integrative therapies for pain management. Mindfulness didn't have a strong evidence in the area of pain. It was more and more acupuncture related things. And so we published the joint guidelines on integrative therapies for anxiety and depression. I'm the first author on that. And it was a panel of uh, 16 experts, half from SIO, half from ASCO. We followed the ASCO practices using only high-level RCTs. We rated the evidence. We have a number of evidence-based recommendations, the strongest of which are that mindfulness-based interventions should be offered to all people with cancer during and after treatment. Wonderful. It's huge. And so this has implications, you said, on reimbursement and insurance and all of that. Huge implications. Huge implications. It could be, um, you know, often guidelines are wrapped into uh, accreditation for comprehensive cancer centers. So the work now is on implementation and uptake of the guidelines, Mm. right? So yes, they guide reimbursement for insurance companies. They guide what kind of programs and services are offered to people within comprehensive cancer centers, which are the big academic centers and also the community-based centers. The practitioners now within the integrative world, you know, um, can hand these guidelines to their administrators and say, ASCO says we should be doing this. Yeah. So it's a huge coup, right? (laughs) I just love tracing the whole trajectory from, you know, you in graduate school being interested in this and being part of a group to come up with an intervention, the first, you know, of its kind to implementing at an international level, um, these guidelines, which is a, you know, systemic and structural change in this system. So that is just amazing. Yeah. It's huge. And so we also have guidelines coming out on sleep and fatigue are the next ones. So mindfulness-based interventions will probably figure in those as well. Fantastic. And I guess that also involves um, making sure that it's feasible in these different institutions and they have what they need, which I guess would involve teachers of these types of programs and things like that. Well, it, yeah, resources. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. there's community-based organizations that might might offer them. In Canada, the push is they should be all free you know, in the States, there's different there's different reimbursement models, sliding scales sometimes. But really, my um, philosophy around this is that this should be no less important than chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. Mm, I love it. Yeah. 
Well, Linda, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Um, just one other thing I wanted to ask about before we wrap up, um, and that's your involvement in forming the new academic society, the International Society for Contemplative Research. Yeah. So just to give listeners a little bit of a background, um, one of the original goals of mine in life was to try to help seed this new field and kind of create a field of academic research and study around contemplative practices and these intersections around mind and um, the application of these practices and different sectors of society. So for many years, we were kind of the hub of that academic community because it was such a new area. And as fields grow and gain momentum and more and more people become involved, it's kind of a natural process where they will kind of form their own academic society uh, made up of the folks who are who are doing the work. And that group will help maintain that momentum and host the annual academic conference and things like that. So several years ago, um, it seemed like the field had really grown enough that it could sustain, you know, its own society. So Mind and Life really wanted to help facilitate this transition. And you've been a huge part of making that happen. So could you share a little bit about your experience there and how that's gone? Well, you know, I've been involved in Mind and Life for a long time, you know, and that was also one of the early involvements that shaped the trajectory of my whole research program was um, early 2000s, you know, attending one of the dialogues, I think it was in Boston with the Dalai Lama, and then um, getting in on the ground floor with the Summer Research Institute. Yeah, like I was at the first one, and then I was on the planning committee for subsequent ones and faculty and stuff. And then sort of took a bit of a, a break while I had a couple of kids and wasn't able to, you know, go to SRIs and things like that. But then got involved with Mind and Life again as co-chair of the 2020 conference, which ended up being virtual. Yes. But we still had 600-odd people. Yeah. Then Mind and Life decided that they wanted to, you know, support us to go independent to develop this research society. I was involved with a small group of people, you know, um, Amishi Jaws, Endel Siegel. We got a think tank grant. And so we ran a couple of think tanks. They ended up being virtual, but we had 40-odd senior scholars in the area across disciplines. You know, so that's one of the key things. And we developed a mission and a vision for what's become the ISCR, the International Society for Contemplative Research. And so we created a executive committee across the different disciplines, tried to have diversity in other ways. And we had our, hosted our first meeting um, back in February in San Diego. And it was great. We had over 300 people. It was beautiful. So we're actually planning our next meeting. I haven't announced it yet, but very soon will be. It's going to be um, in Italy. June 2024 in uh, Padova, which is um, just like 20 minutes outside Venice. Okay, well, flag for contemplative researchers, block your calendars for next June in Italy. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, it's really been so exciting to see how the field has grown and evolved over the years that it's now, you know, big enough and autonomous enough to be able to move all of this forward. So thank you so much for all that you're doing to help make that happen. Yeah, and it's been great to have the support of Mind and Life as we sort of branch out on our own, really focusing on the, the scholarship and the research piece of it. Well, Linda, thank you so much for, for all of this amazing work and all of the, the people that you are helping. And um, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. It's been a real joy to chat with you. Yeah, it's been great. It's always fun talking about all these things. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. 
And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.